Amazing grace. Thank you, girls. Uh, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amen. Amen. As you turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, please. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll pick up where we have left off. We've been working through this book verse by verse. I hope that you find the material that we're going to be on in the next couple of weeks very interesting. I, I hope you do. Uh, I'd like to read this entire section aloud. It'll be verses 3 through 16. At the same time, I'd also, as you're turning there, like to invite you to the I Am a Church Member class uh, that is happening on Sunday mornings. We just began with an introduction this morning. Jerry Robertson is heading it up. Gerald is going to take a couple of the weeks. But um, it's a Bible Life class about being a church member, not a membership class. But uh, there it is. I encourage you to come. We've just gotten into the introduction. We'll be starting uh, the first chapter of the book next week. Very encouraging this morning. Jerry did a wonderful job. Um, 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 to 8. Very interesting passage here. Uh, Let's begin by reading the entire section, verses 3 through 16. Honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return for their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever." A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, They want to get married, thus incurring incurring condemnation, because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that they may assist those who are widows indeed. Hmm. What a text. What a passage. As we look at this, you know, initial mistake that you and I might both make uh, in reading this passage would be saying to ourselves, you know, this is all about widows. It's just widows, and in doing so, you know, we might come into this hazard. And the hazard would be that the majority of us who are not widows here would think, you know, this probably doesn't apply to us. Um, I don't need to listen to what's being taught. We conclude it isn't about us. It's either solely concerning widows, or perhaps it's for pastors or church leaders uh, to find instructions on how they might distribute a benevolence fund of some sort. Probably doesn't apply to me. But instead of that, this entire passage concerns all of us as a church. 
more importantly, talks about how we are contributing members of our church. What most Christians find so immensely valuable as we look through the Scriptures, the pages of scripture, Scriptures, Old Testament to New Testament, is just how specific and detailed it gets on some of these things. It doesn't usually leave a lot of gray area. Our culture, meanwhile, they love to swim in a sea of relativism. They love gray area. They can say, you know, it might be right for you, probably not right for me, or whatever applies to you as a Christian probably doesn't apply to me, and vice versa. Even in the church, people say, well, that passage might apply to you, it doesn't apply in any way to me. People want to live in relativism. Might or might not be important. The thing that we have to acknowledge is, as people try to escape the commands of God, that we too still have a sin problem. Though we've been redeemed, we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we've got a sin problem, a sinful disposition. We call it our flesh. Scripture calls it our flesh. It seeks to live in that same way. Uh, Relativistically. I think I just made that word up. To live in a relativistic way. And when we study God's Word, our sinful nature, it's constantly seeking a way out. We need to acknowledge that. If we're truly honest with ourselves, we like to have an escape hatch from the commands of God. And that escape hatch is often in rationalizing the Bible. It might work somewhat like this. We find in verse 13, as we look at our passage, a description of younger widows who learn to be idle going from house to house gossiping. We say to ourselves, well, that, what an awful thing for those younger widows to do. You know, I'm really glad that the Apostle Paul is addressing, addressing them in this passage. They really need to stop that, those younger widows. Thank God I'm not like them. Fortunately, you know, I'm, a, I'm an older, I'm a more mature, married woman, not even a widow. Certainly I don't go from house to house being a busybody, gossiping. I don't even have time for that. I have way too much to do on my computer with Facebook and texts and emails. I have no time for that. This doesn't apply to me. Or a man might say, you know, those women are always the problem. Been that way since the garden. You know, beyond that, my mother, she has a great pension plan left from my dad that's taking care of her. None of this applies to me. And, and we can see how easily Scripture is dismissed from ourselves. And, and all we do is need to find some way to categorically exclude ourselves from what's going on. We can say, I'm not a widow. I don't have any widows in my immediate family. I'm not younger. I'm not even a woman. None of this applies. Thank you very much. Can we just move on to the next chapter? We dismiss everything without ever actually examining ourselves. But in actuality, we're told that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching and correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. All of it is God-breathed. Is God breathed. All of it is useful to us. God has provided His Word as a lamp unto our feet, we know, a mirror to our lives. James 1.21 says this, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. And then likening the word of God to a mirror, James says this. He continues, 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he, was look, he has looked at himself and then gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of man he was. Are we guilty of that? Isn't that exactly what we do? We, we look into the Word, sometimes two, three, four, five times a week or more. We say, huh, well, that's interesting. Those are some important facts. And then we quickly turn away and go on our merry way without ever really thinking how that affects us. Nothing we think needs to be changed in our reflection as we hold up the mirror of the Word to our lives. We're just gathering facts. We're hearers but not doers. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to find that in this passage, very much needs to be changed in our lives, every one of us. And and as He does in many locations in Scripture, uh, God will use two contrasting role models. They contrast one another to encourage right behavior and expose wrong behavior. This is a beautiful attribute of our scriptures. Not only does it make a very positive appeal to do what is right and what is good, it equally makes a negative appeal and says, don't do that. Don't do this. Reject this. Gives a strong warning to resist what is wrong. And scripture does so often do this through two contrasting figures in the Bible. There's usually not a lot of gray area between these figures. There's one who sins and begets more sin. There's the other who is righteous, usually begets more righteousness. We need to choose a path. 1 John 1.5 assures us, saying, This is the message we have heard from Jesus and announced to you, the Apostle John wrote, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. Christians are people who earnestly strive to walk their lives in the light. That doesn't mean we don't struggle at times. We surely do. Every single one of us struggles with sin. But our goal is to live in the light. And thankfully, the blood of Jesus, John told us, cleanses us from all sin as we live our lives. He cleanses us. But being born again and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, it stokes our fire to want to please Jesus Christ. It stokes our fire. All the while, this, this lingering sin problem that we have, it, it troubles us. It bothers us. And, it, and unbelievers, in, by comparison to that, someone who isn't born again, most of the time they're aiming for darkness. They lark, like darkness. They rather enjoy darkness. They might even put a really pretty face on darkness. But nonetheless, darkness. And in Scripture, we're able to see the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. It's repeatedly portrayed in front of us for our instruction. There was Abel, who was willing to sacrifice the firstlings of his flock in order to give them to God. The firstlings of the flock represented the future. They were your newborn animals. You were giving your future into the hands of the Lord by sacrificing those. His brother Cain, by contrast, gave his... Second best, 
And then he murdered his brother for making him look bad. Then there was King Saul. He improvised on God's commands, if we remember. And and he made an inappropriate and illegal sacrifice because the priest Samuel was not there with him. Compared to that, we have young David who felt guilty even for cutting off a piece of Saul's robe. Look at the contrast there. And it would be very dismissive of us to think that our passage today that merely provides a solution to a social problem of impoverished widows. It does do that, but only to a very limited extent, we will see. Um, What the text actually provides us are role models for us to learn from. Role models for our lives. And over the next couple weeks, perhaps three weeks, we're going to observe three categories of widow. We're going to have a widow indeed, plan words here, a widow indeed, and a widow in good deeds. A widow in deeds. We're going to have a widow in need, one who has to have help, and a widow in greed. Today we'll begin with a description of that widow who's gotten it right. She behaves properly. She's the widow in deeds. She's a role model. Next week we're going to observe the social aspect of how the needs of this type of widow are preferably met. That would be our widow in need. And third, we're going to scrutinize a widow who just gets it all wrong. She gets it all wrong. She thinks about herself first, what she can get for nothing, while disregarding others in the church. This would be our widow in greed. But our passage today is not exclusively about or even primarily about widows. Don't get misled into that. So don't take, don't take a nap, alright? If you're not a widow, don't take a nap. This is for all of us. This is about our own proper social behavior. And uh, first, observing the proper Christian behavior. Second, we'll be talking about lessons on benevolence, not only to widows but others next week. Third, we're going to be talking about the busybody. Then after all this, we're probably going to have to take the rest of the summer off. There's going to be some tough dredging through this. There's going to be some great stuff. Stuff we don't hear a lot uh, today spoken about in, in Christian circles. We've got a widow in deed, a widow in need, and a widow in greed. So look with me, if you will, at verse 3 for the first. The widow indeed. Verse 3, it says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. And we look at this, the first, the first word that we see that we encounter, it's this word honor. Honor her. The Greek word for honor here means to assign a high value to something or someone. In, in fact, uh, it was even used to speak about compensating someone financially, to ascribe honor to them. And we, we might translate this an honorarium today. Have you heard of that? Ascribing honor financially. It's the same root word, though in a different form, the same root word as used in verse 17, which we'll discuss in a few weeks, that tells us to honor those who lead the church as pastors who excel in preaching and teaching. And financially compensate them for it, to honor them. Same basic word. Giving honor to widows, this would have been very revolutionary in Ephesus. This city where Timothy is trying to minister, a very difficult city, a very pagan city. Honoring these widows in the Roman culture uh, would have been a new 
a new thing for the church for everyone there because the Roman culture assigned no value to elderly widows at all. No value. Especially ones who had no one else, no family, no income, no money, nothing to offer. Romans didn't have any provision for them. They didn't have a a social system to care for them in this era at this time period. The church is to contrast that. The Hebrews, as we know we look at the Old Testament, were always to make provision for the care of elderly widows and orphans. The Old Testament has has provisions for them. But unlike, unlike them, this Roman culture in Ephesus had no social programs. If a widow didn't have a family to provide for her, if she had no resources, no money, no finances, often her only options were to either prostitute herself or die of hunger. That is not a huge exaggeration at all. That was very commonplace in the Roman culture at this time. If you had no other family whatsoever to take care of you, and no way to provide yourself. The outlook for an elderly widow at this time that was completely left alone, a widow indeed, no family members, is very, very grim. Very grim. Not so in the church. Not so in the church. An elderly widow without a family now has a family. And if you remember last week, in verse 2, we were instructed to regard the older women even as our own mothers. Jesus officially reclassified family members you know, far beyond his blood relatives, his blood brothers, his blood sisters, and his mother. He included everyone who followed him when he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Remember from last week. And to demonstrate this tangibly, in one of his final acts on the cross... Jesus looked down on his mother and the disciple that was next to her. We know this is John that was next to her at his crucifixion. And in John 19.26, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, John, behold your mother. And it says from that very hour, the disciple took her into his own household. So there was an adoption there of Jesus' mother. He made sure she was cared for. This is very unlike the Roman Empire. You know, the the church has always been a refuge for those who are destitute. The church has always assigned a very high value to the poor and elderly. Has always done so. And God loves the poor. But this is very counter-cultural in the city of Ephesus. In fact, it's very counter-cultural in America. Very countercultural. America looks down on the poor. That's a fact. America looks down on the poor. In fact, the church, we have this thing that we've talked about repeatedly called the prosperity gospel. The false prosperity gospel, that is. It's so popular in America that stadiums are being filled with it. And it declares that if you are poor financially, then you've got something wrong in your life spiritually. That's what they teach. That's a lie. Something's wrong with you, they say. But the Bible says in James 2 verse 5, Did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that He promised? The answer is yes. Everybody nod yes. But you have dishonored 
the poor man, James says to the early church. You've dishonored him. You know, so you might, you might say when, as we talk here about benevolence and other things in the next couple weeks and, and older people and people in need, you know, I, I've got a quick and easy fix. Let's just start a commune and everyone can join in and pool their resources and we'll all share equally and we'll live happily ever after. Besides, that's how the early church always did it, right? Wrong. Wrong. That is not how the early church did it. That's not what the first century church did. What you are reading right here in 1 Timothy and other letters is what the first century church did. Um, The first century church did not prescribe a communalism, communal living. They didn't prescribe it. They didn't command it. What the early church history shows in Acts chapter 2 is that when there is a powerful moving of the Holy Spirit among Christ's followers, that Christians will be enthusiastic to share what they have with others who are in need. That's what it shows. And, and we're told in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, another letter, that they do so not grudgingly, not under compulsion, right? Because God loves a what? A cheerful giver. Yes. it's it's something that we want to do because it's not grudging. And and we don't find in Scripture that Christians are placed into a commune under some kind of religious law. Talk more about this next week. Uh, You know, you you and I know, we realize, uh, as with every group of people, that there are some very nice Amish people. Is that right? There are some very nice Amish people. But they got this one wrong. They got it wrong. And people have come out of some of those inner circles, not all, but they've come out of those inner circles of different types of communes. And they'll tell you that in some situations, again, not saying all, but in many situations, those who are in control there, who are the elders there, they're very rigid and controlling in how the money is handled. Not a lot of freedom in what goes on in a lot of those. Uh, Communalism functions not as a movement of generosity of the Holy Spirit and that of God's grace. Communalism is a function of rigid religious rules and law. That's what it is. And someone has to control it. And you see that a lot. You know, Amish traditions and others, they make really great Hallmark movies. They do. It's good entertainment. We'll touch more on this next week. But Jesus says that by grace... Matthew 14, 7, the poor will always have with us, and we, and when we wish, we can do good to them. When we wish, we do good to them. Moved by grace, moved by the Holy Spirit, moved by generosity. And we're, we're provided opportunities to do good when we wish. We should want to. But Jesus didn't come to eliminate poverty. He didn't come to make everyone, everywhere, socially and economically equal. Talked about this a bunch of times too. If that's why Jesus came over 2,000 years, he really failed. That's not why he came. We're not all going to distribute everything equally. Um, We're going to talk next week a little bit about mandatory redistribution of wealth. We'll talk about that. Get your pocketbook ready, Jerry. We'll talk about what grace looks like, what benevolence looks like, what giving to people who are in need looks like. That's for next week. But for this week, we acknowledge that Christians are here to do good to the poor. That's why we're here. And uh, to share the gospel and to honor the poor. 
even the widow who has nothing. But you might be surprised that for a widow to receive ongoing financial support, this honorarium that we're looking at, she has to demonstrate moral excellence. Moral excellence. She's our spiritual role model in this passage that we're going to learn from. And look with me at at verse 5, where Paul begins his description of her, because not all widows are widows indeed. Not all widows are going to receive ongoing financial support from the church. In verse 5 it says, Now she who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, she has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. These are some of the qualities in this woman. There will be, be more. And, and this word left alone here indicates that a widow indeed has been entirely left alone. That's what the Greek word means. Entirely. No one left. She's a widow indeed. Her husband has died. She absolutely has no other means of support. No children or siblings or other family members. No resources. No assets of any kind. A theologian I was reading, uh, a, excuse me, a good bit on this. His name is Ralph Earl. He writes this. The Jewish synagogues gave careful consideration to the care of the widows. And we know they did. So does the church. But he continues... In the culture of those days, a widow could not ordinarily find any employment and so would need financial support. Today, with insurance income, social security, and job opportunities, the situation is very different. It's very different today. He says each church should still be sure that no widow in its congregation is left destitute. As those who have nothing, have no social security income, nothing to go for, no family members whatsoever... This is a very small swath of widows. Very small section. And it becomes even smaller when you look at the description of our widow in verse 5 and subsequent. It says that she has fixed her hope on God. Like Anna, a woman who is a woman, a widow indeed, she prays. She's known to be a woman of prayer, a widow of prayer. You know, Anna was 84 years old. She wouldn't leave the temple. She fasted day and night, and she prayed uh, for opportunities to share the gospel about the Redeemer. She was evangelistic. It was known at the temple. She was one who wanted to take the good news to people. She was a prayer warrior. And, and she invested her energy in pointing everyone to Christ and the redemption available uh, through Him. She was not only a model for an impoverished, widowed woman in need. She's a model of all women. She's a model for all of us. All women indeed. All women in general. And uh, you can tell a woman who has fixed her hope on God by how she prays. Her commitment to prayer. How often she prays. Where she's at when she prays. How she prays. You can tell a lot by that. Such a woman, it tells us, continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. So a widow indeed is known for persevering in prayer and pointing others to Jesus Christ. We have, a, we have widows among us who are prayer warriors. I see the faces right now. You can tell when they pray, they're prayer warriors. They work hard at this, they care. That's a fact. To my knowledge... We're not aware of an elderly widow at this time in our church who's destitute, 
who doesn't have any sort of income or any type of assistance without food or basic human necessities. If there is, I'd like to know about it, very honestly, very sincerely. Uh, That might require them to be put on some kind of list, like we see here and we'll talk about in the next couple weeks. A list of ongoing financial support, to be honored, to receive the honor due. Uh, that, that's what this list is in, in this passage describing. It's continuing, ongoing support, continuous, for widows with no source of other income. And uh, we, we have to also acknowledge when we look at this passage, very important here, in no way does this passage prohibit nor dissuade or govern one-time or seasonal support. If you want to give something to someone, if you want to give them a gift, if you see someone in need and you want to pay for something in their life, in no way is that restricted by this. That's something you have chosen to do. There are opportunities to do good to others, for sure. In those situations, you know, the stringent age, retire, uh, stringent age requirement that I hear, I hear people debate, complain about, there's no requirement there for things like that. It's situation to situation. How the Holy Spirit leads you. But ongoing church support, that means coming from the church itself, that's a different story. Uh, Ongoing church support, regular church support, it's never designated, never was designed at any point in the church uh, to be planned as a retirement plan for every widow over 60. That was never what it was designated for. Uh, The reason I bring this up is, is this text, I've heard it, It takes a lot of criticism for being very unreasonable. Uh, People will come and say, you know, how can you have that mandated age for a widow's retirement of 60? How can you do that? My answer is, this isn't retirement. Nothing in here is a retirement plan. Uh, Nothing is a church-governed retirement plan. Uh, It isn't a a minimum age for a widow's retirement. You're free to retire whenever you like. That's not what we're looking at here. Um, It isn't retirement. What it is is a set of criteria that that a widow indeed must meet to be considered, to be added to a list for ongoing financial assistance. That's what it's describing. And and she must have no other means of support. She's fixed her hope only on God. She has no other recourse. And she has a solid reputation of committed prayer. At this time... We don't have a list. I, I've been told that uh, by someone that said, well, I thought you took the, took the Bible literally. And, and you want to point to other passages of the Bible literally and show me your list. I've actually had that said. I go, what list? Oh, you know, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says you're supposed to have a list. You're literal in the Bible, right? I go, yes. And I, I, and I have to explain, we don't have a list at this time. If we had a situation and a woman of this description, a widow of this description, we'd surely have to consider that because the Bible tells us to do so. In modern America, with the resources we have, the prosperity we have, the government programs we have, where there's someone left with no type of support, very, very rare. Very rare. That's probably not real good for the church health-wise. We probably should have to sacrifice more for one another. But nonetheless, it's the age we live in. Um... And, and what you're going to see next here is something that's really going to astound you about this list. Our widow indeed also has to be a spiritual role model to all the other women in the church. Where do I see that, you say? Look with me at verse 9. 
a widow is to be put on the list only, only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, a one-man woman. Very similar to the wording of the elders back in chapter 3, who had to have a reputation of being committed to one woman. He was a one-woman man. This wording here in the Greek is exactly reversed. She's a one-man woman. She, is known to, she has a reputation for being committed to one man. Literally, again, a, a one-man woman. It doesn't mean, doesn't say that she was only married once. Later in verse 14, you know, Paul actually encourages the younger widows to marry again. He actually encourages that. So there's nothing immoral about being married again, necessarily. But very similar to what we found with the elders... And what we just learned about the Apostle Paul in chapter 1, who before his conversion was a murderer, very similar, the widow indeed didn't have to have a perfect scorecard for her entire life, even before she became a Christian. That's impossible. I don't know anyone who had a perfect scorecard, especially before becoming a Christian. But since becoming a Christian... She must have a long-standing reputation for moral excellence and commitment to one man. She has to have that, that, that commitment. She has to be a Christian woman that people will look to, the younger women will look to. She should be committed to her husband. Everyone here should be as well if they have a husband committed. Every man should be committed to his wife as well. This, this isn't asking too much, yet that woman needs to be a role model. But it doesn't end there. The requirements for the list get tougher. Look with me at verse 10. The widow indeed also has to have a reputation for good works. She has brought up children. She has shown hospitality to strangers. She has washed the saints' feet. She has assisted those in distress. And she has devoted herself to every good work. That's quite a list. That's a very, very high standard for any widow who might receive ongoing financial support from the church. Very high standard. And she receives this ongoing support because she has been a valuable asset to the church and has demonstrated that to her local church over years. For years she has been, uh, has been an asset to her church. She has demonstrated loyal commitment to Jesus Christ and His church. So when she falls destitute, she's going to be showing honor. She's going to be showing honor. One very possible scenario, if you look at what she has done, what this Christian woman has done, uh, in some situations at least, it's a very possible scenario that this widow indeed might be financially broke because she gave it all away. She helped everybody in distress. She gave her finances away. She helped everybody. She's given it. She's given her all to Jesus Christ. She's given all to her community, to her Christian friends, to her church. And she served her fellow brothers and sisters in her local church for years. She has a reputation for all of these. Let's not get in the mistake that, that, we, that a widow comes and it's like there's a bartering thing. It's like, well, we can put you on a list and stuff if you'll do these from this day forward. No, that's not what this is saying. This woman who qualifies as a widow indeed has been doing this for the church for a long time. For a long time. And uh, 
how would we not give back to her? This is a no-brainer. She's going to receive an honorarium for her life service to the church when she's fallen on hard times. Yet, Yet this all describes a very high standard. She's lived an exemplary life. The question is that we need to ask when we look at this, woman or man alive, but especially a woman uh, looking here, have you? How do you fall out on these criteria? How are you in helping uh, the strangers, the people in distress, uh, every good work, washing the saints' feet? Uh, Jerry was talking this morning about the functions of a church member and, and, and what you're called out to. Not that you're called up for, or what you joined up for, but what you're called out by Jesus Christ to do. He'll continue talking about that in the coming weeks. Have you shown hospitality to strangers? Have you served your fellow Christians, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you assisted those in distress? Have you devoted yourself to every good work? This has to be asked of all of us. This is our role model. This is what it looks like to receive honor when honor is due. You know, just as I I, I said a couple months back uh, when we talked about the qualifications of an elder in chapter 3. We looked at those qualifications and I said at that time, those qualifications should describe every man in the church. They aren't just a minimum set for those who want to be elders. All elders have to be there. But those uh, uh, character traits of an elder should be present, Scripture tells us, in every man. Every man. And uh, the same way, these qualifications of a widow indeed, they should describe every woman. Every woman should look this way. uh, Because it describes her habitual life before she was ever widowed. That's what her life looked like. And she was a woman of high moral excellence, good deeds, long before her husband ever died. Years before her husband ever died. In fact, I wouldn't even doubt that on a lot of occasions, a widow indeed in that day, that her husband was actually an elder or deacon in the church. Because if she was going to do all that and give all that away, her husband was probably going to have to go along with it. They were working together in the Lord. People knew who they were. They were serving and giving and giving and giving. And now she's left alone. The church is going to have to step in. But listen briefly as I summarize these qualities of an elder from chapter 3, just a quick summary here of what an elder should be, what a man should be in the church. It says an overseer or an elder then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Now compare that summary to a summary of a widow indeed that we just looked at. Chapter 5. She is a widow indeed who has been left alone. She has fixed her hope on God, continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. A widow indeed is not less than 60 years old, having been a one-man woman or a wife of one husband. She has a reputation for good works, She's brought up children, just like the elder. She has shown hospitality to strangers, just like the elder. Served one another, washed the saints' feet, assisted those in distress, has devoted herself to every good work. She is a role model of this, of 1 Timothy, for women. You know, our, our passage 
Quite honestly, it doesn't describe a woman who has squandered her entire life, comes to a church someday or starts going to a church finally when she's 60 years old and said, hey, can I be put on a list somehow? That's not what it's describing. What it's describing is a woman who has given her whole life to Christ. She needs help. She needs help. You know, the church is not under compulsion to meet every request. There's no way the church could meet every request. We're going to talk about benevolence again next week. In fact, in fact, I wouldn't doubt here, as we read through this, and I read through it again and again in different versions, I'm not getting the feeling that Paul is exhorting the church to take on or find more widows indeed. I don't get the feeling that he is, he is um, by his tone, by his wording, that he's trying to be inclusive. I'm almost getting the feeling that he is saying, you know what? You need to tighten up a little bit. Everyone is wanting to come in, and you're just loosely giving away the resources that could be used for those who are widows indeed, which will be the final verse as we wrap up. He said, Family members are supposed to take care of their, of their own widows so that church may not be, wid- may not be burdened so that they may, be assi- so they may assist widows who are in distress. There comes a point where you can spread it so thin over in so many different ways of a church benevolence fund that you don't have anything left to actually help any individual who needs it. That can happen. Again, this doesn't govern um, your individual generosity to people that you know who have needs. This is talking about the church itself and how it functions. Talk about benevolence again next week. Um, But there's a few who devoted their lives to church service. They now have no other means of income. Scripture says we need to take care of them. And uh, I personally don't believe that this section of Scripture is put here merely to instruct us how to take care of widows indeed. Like today, I don't anticipate the local church in Ephesus was overrun by women of this caliber. I don't think there were so many of them who were completely left alone, completely destitute, no family members or sisters or brothers or anything with no form of income. I don't think there was a run on it. I don't think that's why it's here. It doesn't represent that huge of a segment of people. But admittedly, you know, there were uh, no social programs to fall back on in that day. So I anticipate that there were many churches who had a list. I'm not denying that one way. But, I, but I, am, I am convinced as I continue to read this that the reason this is put here is so that women could look at the description of a widow and know that they could give their entire life to serve Christ, that they wouldn't have to hold back, that they wouldn't have to worry if their husband dies, what's going to happen to them. As long as they're serving the church, Paul says, don't worry, go all out, pull out all the stops, Give to those in need. Help those in distress. The church is going to be there for you. That's what he's teaching. The church is going to be there for you. I believe the passage is designed as a model for women and men to not fear pulling out all the stops in Christian service. Christ will provide. His church will provide. Serve your church. Serve Christ. Give to those who are in need. And give to those who are widows indeed. Worse comes to worse. We're going to be here for one another. We're going to take care of one another. Uh, but for us today, this section is to teach us godliness. 
Look at these qualities. Look at Anna, the prayer warrior. Are we doing these? Are we doing these? We need to self-reflect. Are we taking care of those who are in need? Are we showing hospitality? Are we being like Anna, evangelistic? Next week we're going to learn from this passage. Where the financial burden to take care of family members falls. Where, where does that financial burden fall? Does it fall in the church? Does it fall on us as individuals? There's a whole lot of misunderstanding in the church. You know, e- even our, our culture, what it's turned to in very much a social gospel. And when you hear the term social gospel out there, uh, you'll hear it in, in, uh, in our government. People say they believe the social gospel. What they mean by that is that Jesus came not to be a sacrifice for our sins, Not to be the substitute, not that he is God's literal son. What they mean by that is Jesus came to give us a model of being generous to one another. That's what they think of with Jesus. Many of them say, I believe the social gospel. They see him as a role model, not as God in the flesh. And they have this social gospel. Many of our churches today have adopted this social gospel where their existence is on trying to meet every single need of every individual who comes into the church or knocks on a door. And they concentrate on that. They do a very devoted job to it. We're going to find out next week who the primary responsibility of caring for others lies. For now, let's focus on trying to improve and look more like the widow indeed.